0: On behalf of Lineberg Information Services, this is Bob Keebler, and joining me today is Vince Lackner of the Lackner Group, providers of 6-in-1 estate administration software for the past 30 years. The purpose of today's podcast is to discuss Form 8971, the new BASIS Consistency Form. Welcome, Vince. Thank you, Bob. Vince, let's go back to the beginning. Um, This form seems to have come out of the blue the way i understand it in summer of 2015 um congress now requiring the irs to collect information in the form of this 8971 basically to address basis consistency can you expand upon that for us
1: yes the basis established on the 706 uh using date of death value or alternate value Generally, drives the basis that the recipient of property should use on a sale of that property at some later date. And apparently, there was enough uh, inconsistency in how beneficiaries would set their basis uh, without regard to how the 706 reported it that Congress felt it had to uh, put this provision in uh, for a, a subset, or, well, for the set of 706s that are filed for reasons of size in order to ensure basis consistency. So the IRS now is going to collect data that will let them compare the basis used on the 706 with the basis uh, used for the later sale of that property for income tax purposes.
0: Now Vince, the big issue here is some of these forms are due as early as February 29, 2016. Can you expand on that a little?
1: Yes. Uh, So for all 706s uh, filed uh, for reasons of size <clears throat> uh, on or after August 1st of 2015, there is a new form that's uh, released only in draft format so far and called Form 8971 that must be filed on or before February 29th. Um that include a listing of the beneficiaries uh, who are getting or are expected to get property from the estate Uh, as well as a Schedule A for each beneficiary specifying the property by description, uh, by its uh, value, estate tax value, by its valuation date, normally date of death or alternate but could be other, uh, and whether the asset increased tax liability. So the form has a cover which lists all the beneficiaries and then has all the Schedules A attached. And then each beneficiary has to be sent his or her own Schedule A for the property that a person is getting or is expecting to, to get.
0: Vince, help me out. Um, what is the status of the instructions for this form and, more importantly, the status of the regulations?
1: Sure. Well, the for, the instructions for the form have not been released in draft or final form officially. There was a set of draft instructions or pre-draft instructions that somebody located on the web on a reg info website of the IRS that was dated November 20 of 2015 that precedes the draft form by about a month and so it's been helpful to review those pre-draft instructions and so that's all we know uh, no further form posted yet and no official draft as far as regulations are concerned uh, who knows when we'll see them on the form, as well as on the pre-official draft, uh, and and they're working on that for regulations. I'm sure we will not see regulations until well after the first deadline for the first batch of these forms that must be filed on or before February 29.
0: So let's fast forward a little bit. Let's say somebody died today. Their estate tax return is due in nine months this form would we do 30 days after the 706 was filed. Is that correct? That's correct. Mm-hmm. Now, there's quite a bit of discussion on this, but most estates, certainly any estate that does not file a federal estate tax return, is not going to be required to file the Form 8971. Everyone gets that. But there is some discussion or analysis of even people who might be filing the 706 do not have to file the Form 8971. Walk us through that and make it especially easy for all of us to understand who has to file and who doesn't have to file. Sure. So there
1: are three groups um, uh, that must file the 8971. The first group are those uh, estates uh, of citizens or residents of the U.S. whose gross estates, including adjusted taxable gifts, so namely Line 1 of the 706 plus Line 4, Exceed the basic exclusion amount. The basic exclusion amount for 2015 was $5.43 million. For 2016, it's now $5.45 million. It's a $20,000 increase. So that's the first set that must file the 8971 uh, within 30 days after filing the 706. The second set are estates of non residents who are not citizens of the U.S. Uh, And the difference is that the gross estate and adjusted taxable gifts uh, must exceed only $60,000 because it's a much, much lower threshold uh, for those estates. It would be persons who hold a legal or beneficial interest in property, which an executor is unable to include in the estate's return. So you get these scenarios where an executor is not filing a return, period, or does not have enough information to file a return as to all the property, therefore other property in the hands of other people would have to file a return and they are subject to the EDI-71. So that's the group who must file. And so by omission, uh, it does not include uh, estates that are filing solely for reasons of portability because if it's solely for portability, by definition it means that they're below the basic exclusion amount, therefore are not required to file a 706 for reasons of size. The second group, uh, again by omission, that would not be subject to the eighty nine seventy one requirements would be those filing 706 returns in order to make a GST allocation or election, if they're not otherwise big enough to file a 706 itself.
0: So how many of these forms, are we expecting somewhere between 9,000 000- Say 11,000 of these forms to be required annually. Is that a fair estimate?
1: I would say it's something over 10,000. Now, the only information I could come up with um, are the IRS estate tax return stats for returns filed in 2014, and those include some returns of decedents who died in 13, whose uh, nine month deadline or extension deadline are in 14, and some of those who died in 14. So it's a mixture of people from two years or even more than two years of of, uh, date of death. And the number that they show as all returns filed um, are 11,931. Of those, they show 1,631 are under five million. So let's assume that maybe 2,000 are under 5.45 million. So we're looking at somewhere about 10,000 returns that seem to be large enough to, again, this is sort of uh, limited information. We'd have to cross-check it, but that's the best we know right now based upon the IRS's published stats.
0: So the goal is to get at basis consistency. This form is due 30 days after the 706 is filed, with this, except for this transition period, which should concern all of us with the February 29th deadline. Now, right. there are a number of great discussions going on. Um, Let's take these one at a time. What do we do with IRD? So I die, I have a pension plan worth $750,000. How do we handle it?
1: Apparently IRD is not subject to the statute. Under Section 1014C, uh, it specifically excludes IRD from the coverage of Section 1014, which apparently uh, is the statute that drives this whole new reporting
0: requirement. Now, sometimes when people have an estate and they push property, distribute property out of an estate, they're going to make an election pursuant to Section 643E3 to recognize gain on that distribution, which would probably result in a step-up in basis to the beneficiary, some gain to the trust or to the estate. How do you think we're going to handle that on Form 8971?
1: Well, that's kind of a sticky wicket uh, because obviously it skews the basis that you would otherwise derive from the 706. So the the form itself, Schedule A, says um, estate tax value. Well, estate tax value would not be uh, the right value in this circumstance because the beneficiary took the property at presumably an increased basis if it were sold at a gain by the estate, uh, so that the form itself might need a footnote or asterisk or some explanation in the instructions to point out the variations on simply using a state tax value for for the basis.
0: Now, there's been a fair amount of discussion about real estate with recourse versus non-recourse debt. Any thought on that?
1: Yes. Keith Schiller did a, a very good Leinberg newsletter article Dated September 23rd of 2015, and he pointed out that in the case of real estate with recourse or non-recourse debt, uh, in the case of uh, recourse debt so that the holder of the property uh, was personally liable on any, any mortgage or other debt on the property, you would, in his example, you would report the gross value of the property on Schedule A at $5 million. I'm sorry, his example, $500,000, and the recourse debt would show up on Schedule K as a liability of $300,000. In the case of a non-recourse debt, you show the $500,000 on Schedule A, but then you show no debt on Schedule K because it's non-recourse. And so you have, in both cases, property whose gross value is $500,000, but with a different result for the beneficiary, Um, but the 8971 does not seem to differentiate. It simply calls for the estate tax value of the property, which presumably is $500,000 in both cases. So it seems that they're going to need to have instructions which discuss the exceptions to the default rule, which is use estate tax value for this property. One more point is that the Schedule A asks specifically for each property that you list for the Form 706 Schedule Letter and Item Number where the property is reported, so that the IRS can cross-match it uh, against the 706.
0: Now, let's go a little bit further. Under the law, we're required to file this form 30 days after we file the 706. Mm-hmm. Especially with large estates, it's very common that we do not know who is going to receive what. And we make often make very little effort to figure that out until we've met with the IRS auditor, and come and started to see how the audit is going to work out. Are we going to owe more tax? Are there things that were valued where the auditor believes we're paying too much tax or where the auditor believes we need to pay more tax? Um, How are we going to address that on this form? I mean, some of this is just going to be a mystery 30 days after the 706 is filed.
1: Yes. Well, the form calls for a listing of beneficiaries in Part 2 on page 1 of the form, and it calls for a number. This is how many beneficiaries received or are expected to receive property from the estate. Now the Schedule A itself calls for property acquired from the decedent. So it's possible that if you make no distributions yet as of the filing date of the 706 plus 30 days, that you would be required of course to report the number of beneficiaries expecting to get property but might not have to attach any Schedules A if nothing has yet been acquired by the beneficiary. So that's unclear, but a strict reading of those words might suggest that you'll do an 8971, no Schedules A until later. You then have an ongoing duty to amend your 8971 within 30 days of when the new information becomes available. And um, so you would need to then change your or add Schedules A with the details, Um, In addition, uh, you're expected to report on the supplemental 8971s only the information that's changed uh, as to the property for each beneficiary. So you might have a regular description in the first round of this, but then if something changes along the way, then you're supposed to include only the changed information and not the original information.
0: So where do you think we're going on all this? I mean, we're kind of waiting for the IRS issue regs we're waiting for final instructions but yet this deadline is a month away any words of wisdom for the thousands of returns that have to be filed
1: right well i mean i would say that um fortunately most of the information one is already gathering for a 706 is useful for preparing the 8971 um uh, in fact what we've been doing for years is saying okay if you have um pre-residuary property um, on an asset schedule on the 706, then you would assign that property to specific beneficiaries because it's specific bequest, it's going to be uh, a transfer, or it's going to be joint, and so we're earmarking property to people already, and that takes care of all the pre-residuary property. The only extra data collection we've had to allow people to do is to say, how about residuary property? Previously, we didn't care about that because we didn't need it to calculate residue versus pre-residue. But now we have to say, here are the assets in the estate that aren't specifically designated. Uh, Let's also earmark those to beneficiaries and check a box to say, this is residuary property. And then once that's done and the form is final, the system should produce the form automatically. Uh, So we've done some preparatory work of that kind. Assuming the form doesn't change in any dramatic way, or assuming the instructions don't change uh, in any dramatic way either.
0: Vince, this has been an extremely helpful and insightful interview. Um, thank you for being with us today. Bob, it's been my pleasure. Thank you. On behalf of Leinberg Information Services, this has been Bob Keebler, and joining us today has been attorney Vince Lackner of the Lackner Group, providers of six in one estate administration software. Thank you for joining us today.